This broadcast of Moby Lives Radio is sponsored by Dalkey Archive Press, publishers of The Obstacles by Aloy Uroz, a coming-of-age novel about two aspiring writers from one of Mexico's finest young authors, available wherever books are sold. For more information, go to dalkeyarchive.com. Intergalactic headquarters of Melville House Publishing in Hoboken, New Jersey, a.k.a. the left bank of New York City, it's Moby Lives Radio. Greetings, Earthlings. It's Saturday, the 29th day of April in 2006. I'm Dennis Johnson. On today's show, we're talking plagiarism, what else, with two book industry insiders. First, Sarah Nelson, the editor of Publishers Weekly, talks about the case of Harvard student Kavya Viswanathan, what it means to her publishers as well as to booksellers and the future of book packagers. Then we speak with copyright attorney Richard Denay about the legal case. So what can they do to you legally if you plagiarize someone? And what are the implications of the shared copyright between Viswanathan and her book packager, Alloy Entertainment? But first, here's some news from the book world. Well, the big story this week was, of course, the discovery that someone associated with a prestigious institution who's authored a surprisingly popular new book has committed plagiarism in that book. Not just lifted a line or two, mind you, but lifted line after line, stolen passages word for word, from a previously published book, making the crime obvious and easy to check and therefore mind-boggling in its childlike stupidity. Yes, I'm talking about William H. Swanson, the big business advice guru and CEO of the Raytheon Corporation, who was revealed last weekend to have lifted a huge chunk of his book, Swanson's Unwritten Rules of Management, from the book The Unwritten Laws of Engineering, written by W.J. King in 1944. Raytheon has distributed some 255,000 copies of Swanson's book, which has been featured on the covers of business magazines and hailed by the likes of Warren Buffett and Jack Welch for its blend of folksy wisdom and business acumen in a list of 33 rules for businessmen. For example, Swanson recommends people, quote, be sure to share the credit, close quote. As it turns out, Swanson lifted rules 6 through 22 from W.J. King's book, and he forgot to um, uh, share the credit. Swanson fessed up the day after he was caught in a lighthearted release in which he readily admitted the similarities between 17 of his rules and King's, and he said he was going to add a 34th rule, quote, there are no original rules, close quote, such as, uh, say, thou shalt not steal, Well, then there's that other plagiarism case, you know, the one that was far more important this week than some millionaire CEO business guru being shown up as ethically vapid. Yes, I'm talking about the one that showed up a Harvard sophomore who first paid someone to help her get into Harvard and then to help her write a novel. In case you slept in yesterday, like uh, all day, caveat Viswanathan's novel, How Opal Mato Got Kissed, Got Wild, and Got a Life, was pulled from bookstores by its publisher, Little Brown. A day after saying, they said, uh, yeah, if we could just sell it for one more day, we'll be able to sell that many more thousands of copies. I mean, a day after they said they weren't going to withdraw the book no matter what, and they stood by their author. 
except then, of course, they would have been sued into kingdom come by the HarperCollins imprint of Random House, all because, as you probably didn't hear amidst the uh, huge furor over the Swanson book, Viswanathan had pretty clearly lifted a large amount of text from one of HarperCollins's books. Uh, in fact, a couple of their best-selling books, in fact, both written by Megan McCafferty. Or did Viswanathan's book Packager lift that material? Well, that was the implication of a New York Times piece anyway, which noted in a front-page article, because, you know, there was nothing else going on that day, that an editor who had worked on the HarperCollins book, Claudia Gable, had gone on to work at Viswanathan's book Packager, Alloy Entertainment. Viswanathan, however, took full responsibility, admitted she'd read and loved the McCafferty books, and said she had a photographic memory. At which point, her publisher caved in and sent out a notice to bookstores to get that baby off the shelves. Amazon.com has announced its first quarter financials, and they include sales of $2.28 billion for the quarter, an astonishing 20% increase over its first quarter revenue of last year, and considerably more than analysts had predicted. Nonetheless, the company continued its equally astonishing decline in earnings with a 35% plunge in profits. It was enough for numerous industry insiders to issue warnings, quote, what investors were looking for was spending to go lower, one analyst patiently explained to the New York Times. Another said, quote, the cost of feeding the growth engine here is too high to be sustained, close quote. Amazon's chief financial officer, Tom Skutak, said the Amazon Prime program, which gives customers unlimited shipping for $79 a year, was responsible for the revenue growth. Analysts pointed out it was also responsible for the company's high costs. Skutak bragged in a statement that the program had saved customers half a billion dollars, but he wouldn't say what it had cost the company. Hmm, oh, I don't know. Could it be half a billion dollars? George C. Minden who ran a secret program for the CIA that put a purported 10 million Western books and magazines into the hands of intellectuals living in communist countries during the Cold War, has died of lymphoma at his Manhattan home. As head of a front called the International Literary Center, Minden enlisted some 1,000 Western publishers in his scheme, and according to a New York Times obituary, he successfully tricked recipients behind the Iron Curtain into believing the books were being donated by those publishers as well as Western cultural organizations, rather than as part of a concerted propaganda effort funded by the U.S. government. It was an elaborate effort at that. Minden ran the front as, quote, something of a personalized book club, according to the Times, and he kept close notes on recipients' tastes, quote, so as to better satisfy them in the future. But it also extended to ploys, such as smuggling copies of Alexander Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago into the Soviet Union by hiding copies in the diapers of infants. Minden's Marshall Plan for the Mind, as the Times calls it, was born of his own escape from his native Romania, where his personal great wealth and property were confiscated when the country was taken over by communists in 1946. George C. Minden was 85 years old. The founder of England's biggest book-selling chain, Waterstones, is trying to buy it back from the company he sold it to. Tim Waterstone, who founded the company in 1982, said he is putting up £280 million to buy it back from current owner HMV, but only if HMV agrees to give up its bid for the rival Otakers chain. 
Waterstone says the bid, that bid, which in a long and stormy process underwent government inquiry, was dropped, then picked up again, has bred widespread ill will in the British book industry and has cost the company considerable market share to Amazon and other booksellers. Waterstone said if his bid was successful, he would install himself as chairman of the company and appoint the former head of the Peng- of Penguin UK, Anthony Forbes Watson, as CEO. Waterstone's offer is the biggest for the company so far, and analysts are saying it's a good one. There's only one hitch. HMV says Waterstone hasn't said anything to them about it yet. The day after Tim Waterstone announced his offer, HMV released a statement saying its board, quote, had yet to receive a formal proposal for the acquisition of Waterstones upon which any discussion could take place, close quote. And finally, two sets of parents in Lexington, Massachusetts. Yes, that Lexington, Massachusetts, birthplace of the American Revolution, where Minutemen first stood up to shake off the cloak of the tyranny of the British crown, have filed suit against their local school system for using a book that teaches we're all created equal. David and Tanya Parker and Rob and Robin Worthlin say the Lexington School District should have notified them before a teacher read to their children from a fairy tale book called King and King, which is about a gay prince who falls in love with, uh, well, a gay prince. The lawsuit also says that reading violated a state law saying the parents should be notified of sex education lessons. School Superintendent Paul Ash said the school was under no legal obligation to inform parents of what books are being read. He said, quote, I see this as a civil rights issue. People who are gay have a right to be treated equally, close quote, which is what the attorney for the parents said, that it was a civil rights issue, and apparently this had offended their civil rights. One of the parents, David Parker, was arrested last year after he refused to leave school grounds until school authorities promised they would excuse his five-year-old son from classroom discussion of same-sex marriages. Meanwhile, according to the American Library Association, King and King is number eight on the list of top ten books people want removed from libraries. And meanwhile, the uh, the book's Dutch authors, Linda DeHaan and Stern Nyland, have published a sequel. It's called King, King, and Family. And that's news to me this week. I'm Dennis Johnson. It's Saturday, April 29th, and here's a look at the week ahead in literary history. Sunday, April 30th, is the birthday of poet, essayist, and novelist Annie Dillard. Born in 1945 in Pittsburgh, Dillard at age 28 was the youngest woman to ever win the Pulitzer Prize. She won for her collection of essays, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, in 1974. Monday is May 1st. And on that day, in 1923, novelist Joseph Heller was born. Heller was a bombardier during World War II. He flew over 60 successful missions. During that time, he discovered that, according to military policy, a a pilot could be grounded if found insane. But if the pilot requested to be grounded because of insanity, the Army considered him perfectly sane for trying to avoid danger and would not ground him. Thus, the famous paradox of his satirical masterpiece, 
Catch-22, one of the finest protest novels to come out of World War II. Tuesday is May 2nd, and on that day in 1945, the actress, dancer, and author Colette became the first female member of the prestigious French Society of Writers, the Académie Goncourt. Wednesday is May 3rd, and on that day in 1810, romantic poet George Gordon, Lord Byron, swam the Hellespont, a dangerous four-mile strait in Turkey, now called the Dardanelles. The only other such crossing was said to be swum by the legendary Greek hero, Leander. Thursday, May 4th, is the anniversary in 1948 of the publication of Norman Mailer's first novel, The Naked and the Dead, also considered to be one of the finest novels to come out of World War II. Friday is May 5th, and on that day in 1818, Karl Marx, author along with Frederick Engels of the Communist Manifesto, perhaps one of the most influential texts ever written, was born in Germany. And Saturday is May 6th, and on May 6th in 1940, John Steinbeck won the Pulitzer Prize for his novel, The Grapes of Wrath, a social commentary on the injustices suffered by the working poor in their search for a better life. Steinbeck later went on to win the Nobel Prize in 1962. And I'm Valerie Marians, and that's this week in Literary History. I know my chicken. I have Sarah Nelson, the editor of PW, Publishers Weekly, on the line. Sarah, um, just late last night, Little Brown announced it is pulling uh, How Opal Maida Got Kissed, Got Wild, and Got a Life from bookstores. This is a big deal. What does it mean? Well, it is a big deal, and it seems to have happened very, very quickly. Um, I mean, it's a, a week from the beginning of the controversy till now, mm-hmm. and I mean, when you look at how long it took... You know James Fry and 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 other scandals to sort of get played out. Uh, it's it's sort of surprising. Um, I mean, my guess is is that they pulled the book um, in an agreement with Random House, the the um, Megan McCafferty's publisher, uh, to avoid a lawsuit. Uh, that would seem logical to me. Um, you know, I think. Um, I mean, I'm not quite sure what pulling a book means in the sense, as I understand mm-hmm. it, what they've said is that. Little Brown has issued a statement saying uh, booksellers should return the books to them. I'm right. not sure that means booksellers have to return the books to them. Right. Um, and the book is probably selling like hotcakes right now. Right. And I think the book has been selling. So I'm not quite sure what the responsibility uh, of the bookseller is. Um, I mean, is it illegal to sell this book now? Or can they sell what they have? Or how does it work? Mm-hmm. But in any case, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's a huge admission on Little Brown's part that there's a problem here. And, um, I mean, I, as I say, I'm, I'm sure that they would not have pulled this book if they didn't think that they were, that there were some grounds for a lawsuit. Right. Now, Little Brown is saying that they've printed 100,000 of these, shipped a little over half of that, 55,000. Uh, do you know of any uh, withdrawal of a book on this scale before? Is there anything to compare it to? Uh, well, uh, there was a book that um, was 
St. Martin's was publishing a few years ago, it's probably eight or nine years ago now, about George Bush that they pulled. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember at what, uh, because the, it turned, it, it accused Bush of... Um, of, of having a, a cocaine doing, bust. Doing cocaine, yeah. yeah. Um, that was Fortunate the Son. the author was Fortunate Son, correct. Mm-hmm. And they, the author was found to be a convicted felon and mm-hmm. therefore you know, not trustworthy. Uh, I don't remember exactly at what stage this was, but I do know that what St. Martin's did was they pulled the book and they they pulped it. Right. They, I mean, they they didn't just stick it in the warehouse and wait for it to you know go away. Right. Um, so and and that was pretty big, as I remember. Uh, I don't know the numbers, but I would imagine it was it was at least like this. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Uh I mean, a novel is is um, well, one of the ones I remember is the Jacob Epstein's novel. Um, that was found, I mean, this is like in the early 80s, I think, 1979 or 80, that was found to uh, have plagiarized from Martin Amos. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the books were, you know, taken off the shelves, or at least, not, you know, no further books were printed. I don't believe there was a lawsuit in that case. Right. Um, well, still, pretty, a pretty unusual deal. Uh, we're talking about a couple of incidents similar to this over a period of decades. So this is a, a unique incident. Let's back up for a minute. Um, when the story broke last weekend, there were just kind of casual mentions uh, in passing of the fact that there was a packaging company involved with the creation of this book, a company called Alloy. Uh, entertainment, and that story really grew during the week until just Thursday. The New York Times had a front page article about uh, the book packager uh, on the, on this project, and they seemed to focus on on one editor in particular who had both worked for the publisher at one point and then gone over to work for Alloy, a, a, an editor named Claudia Gable. Um, first of all, just your take on the involvement of a book packager. It was, it was revealing to a lot of people who don't know much about the, uh, the operations of the book business. Alloy has three books on the bestseller list. Right. Right. Um, is, is, this, um, is this going to affect the position of book packagers in the business? Well, I don't necessarily think so. I mean, uh, you know, any more than it's going to affect you know, the the next books that Little Brown puts out. I mean, publishers have, I mean, plagiarism is plagiarism. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's, you know, it's a, it's a black eye um, on the people that were involved in it. But, I mean, I don't think it means that people are, I mean, Alloy has published many, 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 many books that mm-hmm. don't, has, has packaged many, many, many books that don't, that haven't had these problems. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't think the company's going to be, you know, seriously hurt by it. I mean, mm-hmm. what I find interesting about the packaging aspect of the story is that, as I understand it, most of the other books that Alloy and most packagers uh, package are series books and are, are what they call YAs, young mm-hmm. adults. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting to me in this case is that this was a one-off book. Uh, well, I mean, she had a two-book deal, but I mean, it was it was not... It was not part of a series. Part of a series, mm-hmm. right. So I think it's 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 probably not the first, you know, non-series adult book that has come from a packager. Mm-hmm. Um, and fiction, besides. I mean, packagers historically are known for doing non-fiction, um, you know, coffee table books, right. you know, heavily produced books. Uh, and they do, they do that very well. Um, and, and in recent years, they've started to do these teen series. But mm-hmm. I don't think that there have been a lot of one-off adult novels. 
Well, uh, the interestingly enough, the editor that was uh, that I mentioned earlier, Claudia Gable, had worked on uh, the McCafferty books, which were a series mm-hmm. um, that uh, that uh, Miss uh, Vizwanathan is being accused of plagiarizing from. Is it is it going to be hard times for Claudia Gable right now? It, well, it seemed that she was being hung out to dry in that article. A little bit. I mean, but I, I think. You know, it's it's hard for me to believe that any editor said to her writer, go read these books and lift some passages. Right. And it's also hard for me to believe that any editor said, oh, I'm just going to lift these passages. Right. Because, you know, I mean, people don't do that. I mean, why would she do that? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't... I, I, I don't know who who said it and who did it mm-hmm. um, but they all have some responsibility I mean if if the problem is that that um, um, uh, Viswanathan was you know under enormous pressure which I'm sure she was to finish this book she was paid a great deal of money mm-hmm. she's in college you know there was a lot riding on it um, she's 19 years old she's 19 I think she was 17 or something at the time uh-huh. and she I mean but she's also I mean she knows what plagiarism is. I mean, my 12-year-old knows what plagiarism is. Mm-hmm. Um, but she, you know, so did she consciously sit down? And, and I mean, maybe I'm naive, but I, I just don't believe that anybody sat down and said, oh, let's take this package, passage and let's take that passage. I mean, and some of the passages, if you look at them, some of them were, were seemed clearly plagiarized to me, but mm-hmm. some of them were, you know, a step up from, hey, dude, how you doing? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's how do teenagers talk? Yeah. Well, that's how they talk. Yeah. Now, she is saying, there's one of them saying she had not read the books in five years. Right. But she's also saying she has a photographic memory. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I do think there's such a thing as unconscious influence. And mm-hmm. if there were two or three passages, um, you know, where the concepts were very similar, I think that would be, uh, you know, a little bit more acceptable. I mean, well, I haven't read either of these books. I haven't read the McCafferty books, mm-hmm. and I haven't read this book. Mm-hmm. Um so I don't know how closely the whole plot mm-hmm. follows it. But I would imagine that, you know, the plot, the plots are similar in a lot of these books. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're somewhat formulaic, right? Well, I, I, I think what, that's kind of what the, uh, the discussion surrounding the packagers seems to hint at but never quite gets to is, is whether they are actually ghost-writing books. Right. They're just, you know, working to formula, working to a template again and again. I mean, is, there, is that going to be an ongoing story from this, Yeah, do you think? I think so. I mean, mm-hmm. I think how much does a packager do? I mean, mm-hmm. it's one thing to sit down with a writer and you know, sh- and help them shape the narrative and say, well, you know, this plot point doesn't work and that, you know, this should go here and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. I mean, mm-hmm. and that's what editors do, mm-hmm. at, you know, do or are supposed to do at publishing houses. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are plenty of editors that, it, at publishing houses, that rewrite passages. Right. Um, but, you know, nothing goes out without the author's approval. Right. I mean, the book from a from a an author to a publisher the the author holds the copyright I mean, right. the interesting thing here is that the author and alloy hold the copyright so, that's right um, you know and and I think the other interesting thing is just the re- the revelation that there's um, traffic between uh, the editorial traffic between the publishers and the uh, 
in the packages. I, I wonder. You mean, you mean that this woman went from one job to the well, other? Well, is is she uh, a typical? She went from working at uh, at Random House to working for Alloy, and now she's back at uh, at Random House at Knopf. Well, I you know I think you know it's like somebody becomes an agent. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean David Gurnard was was John Grisham's editor, and then he became his agent, mm-hmm. and. I mean, I don't know if he, you know, takes a blue pencil to the manuscripts, you know, in right. his agent role. I mean, there is a lot of fluidity in this business. People who go from being, a, uh, you know, the publisher to being an agent, mm-hmm. to being an editor, to go on the marketing side. It does seem more and more that editorial work is being outsourced, though. Um... Right. That's a good point, and it brings it back to, you know, a sort of long-time lament about contemporary publishing, which is, Editors don't edit. Mm-hmm. The editors don't have time to edit. Uh, you know, I mean, this is what people say. I, I think some editors do edit, and some editors don't edit. Mm-hmm. But the the image of you know the, the whole Maxwell Perkins sitting in a room, you know, Nantalees, for example, sitting in a room with a thousand pages of Pat Conroy's you know scrawled mm-hmm, mm-hmm. novel on on legal paper, um, and uh, you know, a lot of editors don't do that kind of real hands-on editorial work mm-hmm. because they're too busy, because we publish too many books, because a lot of reasons. Right. Publishers have long hired outside people to come in when a manuscript comes in. You know, they, they get in earlier in the process. They create the whole project. Right. Well, let's close by, by just, uh, what's going on at Little Brown today? Last night they announced they're withdrawing a, a book that they've shipped 55,000 copies of. Uh, the author, as far as I know, is uh, is in town, and, and they're and they're they're trying to, uh, to to not talk to the press or to, or to, to have, have a concerted uh, front. And and what's what's the scene there? What's the fallout going to be? Well, I, I mean, they are they are everybody's being very quiet. Um, I did I did not know that the author was in town. Um, well, I'm just guessing because she was interviewed uh, in in uh, uh, the offices of the of the publisher uh, a yeah, day or two yeah. ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I would think that, you know, I mean, the, the big question now is what's going to happen with her second book. Mm-hmm. Are they, are they going to honor the contract with the second book? I mean, this, right. and this is like the, the Fry thing, you know, are they going to come out two weeks from now and say they've canceled the second book? Right. Um, Does something like this allow them to do that? Oh, I, I, I think so. I mean, yeah. I, I have not, I'm not privy to the contract, but um, they, I mean, it, publishers get out of contracts. The second books. I mean, is she going to sue them to make them let her publish her second book? I right. doubt it. Right. So, so that's question. That's the big question right now. What will the, uh, what will become of this writer? Will right. she continue? In fact. Well, I mean, I, I, uh, I do feel kind of sorry for her because mm-hmm. I, I felt that, I mean, the, the interview I saw her um, give on television. I mean, she really seemed. Um, you know, like she was going to cry. Yeah, she's and, pretty swamped right now, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, she is 18 years old. She is a Harvard student. I mean, I'm assuming that Harvard is not going to throw her out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, she's going to go on to have a perfectly fine life, whether mm-hmm. it's as a writer or not, I, mm-hmm. I couldn't say. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, uh, and And what about the, the continuing image of book packages? Is it, is it damaged now? Will publishers hesitate uh, to reveal those uh, connections, or will things go on as I, usual? I, I, don't, I don't think so. I mean, again, I think it's, um, I mean, 
all of a sudden we're all paying attention to book packagers. But uh, I, I don't think it's going to hurt them. I mean, I don't. You know, again, I mean, I don't think somebody said, go out and plagiarize this book. And I don't think that this editor, you know, consciously sat down and said, I'm going to steal passages from this other book. Um, and, you know, I mean, and this may slow them down a little bit. Um, but, uh, but I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think so. I mean, Alloy does have how many books on the bestseller list? Three? Uh, three, right, in the top ten. Right. right. So they're not going to turn away from that. No. Okay. And we think that uh, Little Brown will survive. I think Little Brown will survive. <laughs> okay. Well, Sarah Nelson, thank you so much for coming on Mobiliz Radio and talking about this. Okay. Thanks, Dennis. Richard Danae on the line, a copyright attorney in the, in the book industry in New York City. Mr. Danae, I would like to ask you about the ongoing case involving the book by Keva Viswanathan, the book called How Opal Meta Got Kissed, Got Wild, and Got a Life, which has come under assault for um, uh, apparently plagiarizing another book by another publisher. What exactly are the legal implications of the charges against her. In other words, what prompted her publisher, Little Brown, to withdraw that book from bookstores yesterday? Well, the claim that was made was, was copyright infringement. Um, right. And as I said to you earlier, I, I'm not familiar with either of the books, and I wasn't familiar with the authors. Uh, so I'm going only on what I've read in the New York Times mm -hmm. reports, mm -hmm. uh, which do seem to indicate uh, if they're if they're correct, and I assume they are, uh, that the Harvard student uh, did copy, whether it was conscious or unconscious, wouldn't make any difference legally, uh, but did seem to copy some substantial portions of the other writer's uh, work. Uh, what's involved is something called copyright infringement, which uh, is a tort uh, under our law, and the significance of it is that uh, uh, if one uh, person uh, copies substantially from another person and there's no defense to the copying, uh, there could be uh, uh, a claim and uh, maybe ultimately a judgment for something called copyright infringement, mm -hmm. uh, which is generally shown by proving that there is access to uh, the work that was copied and uh, substantial similarity between the works as the protectable material. So assuming all of that could have been shown, and the parties know better than I do, obviously, but assuming it could be shown, uh, the, the ultimate threat would have been a copyright infringement suit in which a lot of remedies would have been available, including a, 
if the if the plaintiff uh, had been successful, uh, a uh, uh, an injunction uh, requiring the, uh, that the publication be halted, possibly even in the discretion of the court, that books that were uh, out in the marketplace in bookstores or with wholesalers uh, might conceivably have been required by order to be withdrawn if the copying was um, uh, substantial enough that the judge uh, decided to do that. Mm. Uh, so the remedy of an injunction is serious. There can also be uh, significant damages in that case being successful or the complaining author and a, uh, and a publisher. Uh, and, it, and, and the damage remedies also could be significant mm-hmm. because if the copying was clear-cut and there was no real defense to the lawsuit, uh, there might be not only damages but conceivably a share uh, of the profits uh, of, um, uh, of the uh, infringer that were attributable to the material that was copied. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what that might amount to, assuming uh, such a remedy could have been shown, because I don't know the extent of the copying, and I don't know how one would necessarily measure it uh, to see what share of the book profits uh, it, 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 it was attributed to it. But it might be significant because, as I understand it anyway from the reports I've read, that uh, the book was uh, uh, selling briskly and uh, was expected to have considerable sales. So there were uh, real um, remedies of both injunction and damages mm-hmm. uh, that were available. And in a copyright case, if a party, uh, prevail, the prevailing party, let's say it were, it, had it been the plaintiff in this case, uh, if if uh, in the discretion of the court the case was so clear cut, uh, the judge uh, could award to the prevailing party uh, the attorney's fees mm-hmm. uh, of that party. Mm-hmm. Uh, not necessarily all of them, but uh, certainly some portion of them. So there, there were very significant remedies that are available uh, uh, in this kind of uh, lawsuit. So if the parties take it seriously, they may really prefer to make some sort of an arrangement uh, before any suit is filed mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in order to kind of uh, cut short <laughs> the exposure to these remedies. And uh, I, I guess uh, Little Brown made some sort of a judgment uh, here, uh, being more familiar with the work certainly than I am. And uh, by and I gather from what I read today anyway that they, they uh, agreed to withdraw the book to the extent right. they could which means that they would ship no more copies of the book right. and, I guess, ask the, the retailers, the bookstores they sent it to, and the wholesalers and uh, all their customers, so to speak, to return the book. It, uh, I don't a, know that the, any of those customers would have been required to do it. That's but, my next uh, question to you. Yeah, I don't know. That would have depended uh, a little bit on on their arra- uh, distribution arrangements, mm-hmm. um, at least based on what I know. it's not. It, it, it might not be required, although... Uh, given all of the circumstances and the publicity here, uh, I assume there'd be a fair amount of compliance in doing that. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, this this sometimes gets you know banned in Boston and, and the sales go up. Right, uh, so I'm sure I, that's I, what's I, been going on for the last few days. Right. Uh, although, by the same token, I, I don't know that the average uh, reader, not necessarily thoroughly familiar with the, the books of both parties uh, in reading the book would necessarily know what material is involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if that's really been publicized or, if, or is available. But in any event, I, it, I think the exposure uh, to uh, uh, 
uh, a potential injunction and, and damages, even attorney's fees, um, might have led uh, uh, Little Brown and its author to decide to cut their losses if that's what they felt was going to happen. Well, did it damage their case that they also had their author going on uh, on television on a Today Show and other shows uh, admitting a familiarity with the material and also claiming a photographic memory? Well, um, I, I didn't see any of those um, uh, television appearances, but uh, clearly one of the things one has to prove in a copyright infringement case having read uh, uh, the other author's works and maybe several times, and as you comment, and as I read in the paper too, uh, she said that she had a, a, a photographic memory. I'm not exactly sure what the relevance of that is unless she was sort of uh, suggesting that her memory is so powerful. She can't help it. Yeah. She could not, you know, she was almost compelled to remember it. Uh, of course, being compelled to remember something and being compelled to use it or two different <laughs> things and I uh, suppose if you you're, you know your memory is so great that you remember uh, the words you might have remembered the source you got it from but, you know all of that is just you know kind of speculative questions that mm -hmm. come into my mind as to whether it hurt her case I think basically she did acknowledge uh, having read the works and having um, uh, used material from the works and, and that's a big part of the proof of any copyright infringement case mm -hmm. because very often in a copyright case the defendant will say uh, even as even as to the plaintiff's work which has been widely distributed uh, look I, I it may have been widely distributed but I wasn't familiar with it I right. never read it and right. that becomes uh, an issue because it's it's uh, you you do have to show in every copyright infringement case that there was actual copying it's not enough to show that the works are similar or even identical uh -huh. if that can be explained by for another reason, namely, say, independent creation. Uh -huh. uh, so that's always an issue, and it does appear that the Harvard student uh, essentially admitted a big part of the... Uh, of, of showing a, a copyright infringement claim, namely that there was actual copying. Mm -hmm. The step beyond that would be to show that that copying was wrongful in the sense that it was substantial enough and, and, and used material that was uh, covered by the plaintiff's uh, copyright mm -hmm. so that there, it amounted to an infringement. Not all copying uh, is an infringement. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's excused by fair use. Sometimes uh, it, the copying is a material that basically is not original with the plaintiff uh, or public domain material. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, when you hear the word copying used, it doesn't necessarily mean there's an infringement. It only means there was copying. Right. Uh, final question. This is a uh, kind of a complicated case in that that copyright was shared. Uh, with a book packager named Alloy Entertainment. Mm -hmm. um, actually, on the copyright page, there are two names, the author and Alloy. How would that have complicated the case? Is, is one more liable than the other? Um, if it had gone to court, would they have both had to defend themselves? Or what, what exactly are the implications of that shared copyright? Well, it, it, it's puzzling to me a little bit, and uh, I don't know that I could answer the question um, really well without knowing what was the contractual arrangement between the packager and and the student writer. Mm -hmm. uh, they may have shared the copyright, but that doesn't necessarily mean the packager had any responsibility for the writing of the work. Mm -hmm. For example, uh, I, I may have uh, created a work, uh, copied uh, 
uh, from someone uh, and infringed, uh, and uh, yet I may assign the work to someone else who now owns the copyright. Mm -hmm. There may be some technical uh, liability for anyone who is the, the copyright owner at the time the claim is made, but here it seems to me that from what I read, that the student uh, w was, and there doesn't seem to be much dispute about that, the student was fully responsible for the actual writing so that the packager, whatever uh, assistance uh, creatively they, they gave to the, the student, doesn't seem to have um, been involved in the portions of the book mm -hmm. that could be attributed to the other writer. At least mm -hmm. that's what I've read in, in the paper. So I don't think really the shared copyright uh, would have been significant. Uh, yeah, I mean, I assume had there been a lawsuit, uh, since the plaintiff, uh, author and publisher might not really have known what the division of labor or responsibility was between the copyright owners, probably would have sued both, mm -hmm. uh, as well as the publisher, uh, because copyright infringement is, is what is known as a non-fault, uh, um, Tort, meaning that anybody can be responsible if you uh, violate any of the exclusive rights of copyright of another person, even if you didn't know what you were doing, mm -hmm. if you weren't mm -hmm. aware uh, of it, didn't intend to do it, and maybe were not even conscious uh, of doing it. But I think the primary responsibility would have been on the student, the writer, uh, and even had there been other defendants, my guess is the contracts of those other defendants, namely the publisher and the packager with the author, uh, would have protected themselves. Maybe yeah. They would have had that kind of indemnity for claims that were basically uh, caused by the writer. So uh, since she probably has made enough money from the book uh, to cover those claims, I, I think she probably would have had to be responsible to the other parties. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, well, Richard Denay, a copyright attorney in New York City, thank you for coming on the program. Glad to help. And that's our show for this week. Thanks to our guests, Sarah Nelson, the editor of Publishers Weekly, who spoke to us from New York City, as did copyright attorney Richard Denay. And while I'm doling out the thanks, thanks to our engineer, Andrew Steinmetz, and the crew here at Melville House. That's Becky Kramer, Kelly Burdick, and our publisher, Valerie Marians. If you want to write to any of them, you can write to us at Moby at MobyLives.com. Put a letter to the editor in the subject line. Keep it under a million words, and we'll try to read it on the air. We'll be back next week. Our guests, among others, will be columnist Scott McLemy. We hope you'll be back then, too. In the meantime... We also hope you won't forget. That whale is out there, man.
Je n'ai pas 